SAFM Market Update with MoneyWeb. Thanks, Greg. It's five minutes after six o'clock on this Monday evening. A cloudy, cold Monday evening uh, up here on the High Fault in Johannesburg. Welcome to the Market Update. Hilton Tarrant with you till 6.30 this evening. First up, as always, Guguleto Mfupi has your business news. Thanks, Hilton. Good evening. All striking miners at five collieries owned by diversified mining firm Exaro Resources have returned to work, with full production likely to resume on Wednesday. The illegal walkout had threatened the supply of coal to state power utility ESCOM, which uses the commodity to generate more than 85% of electricity for South Africa. Local employment agency AdCorp Holdings says it will introduce a new 10-year black empowerment deal worth half a billion rand after its previous one failed to produce any value. The company says its previous deal, structured before the 2008 global financial crisis, was now underwater and would not benefit its employee share trust or black economic, black economic empowerment partners. And Vodacom has plans to extend its long-term evolution network, LTE, also known as 4G, to its prepaid customers soon. The new internet connection comes with the promise of faster internet connectivity, translating into faster downloads and buffer-free videos. Vodacom is currently investing more than 6 billion rand in South Africa, adding to its network of 3G base stations and building LTE coverage. Turning to the markets now, the JSO share index is closed in negative territory, down by about a tenth of a percent at 40,008 points. The rand at 9.30 against the US dollar, 14 rand 8 cents to the pound and 11.98 against the euro. Gold trading at $1,602 an ounce, a barrel of brand crude oil at $108 and the platinum price at $1,574 an ounce. Thanks, Gugu. Our market watcher this evening, our guest market watcher, Simon Brown, of Just One Lap joining us in the studio. Simon, market still above 40,000 points, barely 40,008 down ever so slightly, 0.14%, but we, we held our head above water for most of today. Hi, evening, Hilton. We did, and it really was a market of two halves. Resources, under, we were doing well in the first hour. At 10 o'clock, London opened. Our resources, in particular, rest of the market got really badly hit. Some of them pulled back, but resources under pressure, gold stocks, the diversified miners, uh, all being sold off. Uh, gold was under 1600 at our close, but is now already back above that level, sort of regaining its day's losses. The industrials, um, the retailers, uh, Aspen, AVI, all of those stocks having a really really good day imperial up on that uh, leaderboard as well mtn bouncing back uh, after that very significant fall last week up two percent today 166 but it was down a, a significant amount last week i think down seven uh, percent on one day uh friday which was an ex-dev day but the div was only about half of that um nigeria looking to essentially do the interconnect rates determination fees uh and start reducing those which is we've seen in south africa which has hurt their profits a bit their average revenue per user has been falling but that's a trend that it started to be for that um, and I suppose in a sense has seen uh, software rates come down we've got some of those companies giving us really excellent rates so it recovered some of it but still off where it closed uh, Wednesday last week before the public holiday 52 week highs for a couple of usual suspects on the board Supergroup up there again 2339 we've got MediClinic also up there Remgrow on the back of that no doubt uh, Discovery uh, almost at 80 bucks a share uh, we've got uh, Impact as well and uh, Sepaku this one's this one's run incredibly hard uh, 6 rand 12 a share now so Parker is interesting so they, they're going to be doing cement they're coming in with, with uh, the Dengati uh, from, from Nigeria uh, biggest cement manufacturers on the continent um, and they're, they're I think it's late this year early next year they might, they'll, they'll start producing they've said before that they're not going to get into price wars with PPC but the 
The big issue PPC has is factories that are 40 years old, i.e. just not economic, particularly when you consider power is one of your biggest inputs in, in cement. Uh, so Parker is going to come in and, and be able to produce it significantly cheaper and really give, give PPC a, 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 a real run for its money in its backyard. There's been competitors before. But the place where Sapaka wants to get to in time is going to be quite significant in terms of size. And we're seeing PPC in part responding by uh, moving into, into Dangote's uh, backyard, moving into Central Africa. Simon, what do you make of this ad called BE deals being pitched as a new deal? Uh, but the reality is the old one was underwater. They had no other option but to, but to refinance this. Yeah, and, and I, I'm surprised. Surprised? Well, no, I suppose I'm not surprised that we haven't seen more expire underwater because in many cases they were very generously priced in order to prevent that. Um, obviously, the crisis of 08, 09 puts paid to that to a degree, but uh, if, if they were really aggressively priced, the, 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 the participants still came through. Uh, AdCorp, there's been one or two other smaller deals. There might be some more coming through. The really big deals obviously have survived, but uh, it, 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 it costs them. I mean, at the end of the day, as Gugu said in the intro there, uh, half a billion, that's not insignificant. Marion Roberts Construction Group, it owns 62% of Clough in Australia. That business has sold its shareholding in a business called Forge. Nice windfall there for Clough and, and for Marion Roberts up the line from that sale. But when most of your profits are being generated by these companies in Australia, you, you, you would probably be looking to increase your shareholding in them as opposed to sell things off. I, I agree. I mean, like 187 million Australian dollars, I think the number was. That's a, a nice flow of cash. It's not going to all end up in Marion Roberts' balance sheet, but nonetheless. And as you say, from the last set of numbers, in fact, all the guys are making their profits in, in, in Australia. I, I think the, the logic behind it perhaps is that they uh, want to focus on the on the mining segment and the like and that's really where, 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 the, where the business is and get rid of the other parts and they said you know it was a, a business which they'd grown up and they were taking their profits I, I, I was surprised and as I said aside from that want to focus on mining which in itself comes with risks you know will mining still be the best place to be in 10 or 20 years well, famous brands, well known for its Steers, Debonairs and Wimpy brands, amongst others, today announced its entry into the family dining segment. It's bought 51% of Steakhouse business, turn and tender with restaurants in Parktown North, Thrupp's Nickelware, as well as Bassonia here in Johannesburg. Earlier, I spoke with Kevin Hedewick and asked him if this deal was similar in nature to those it's done with Tashes in Vovotello, where the founders are kept on board. Yeah, absolutely. It's exactly the same. Uh, it's a model that's worked very well for us, and... Uh, the steakhouse category particularly is new to us, and so uh, we're very fortunate to have the two uh, Aaron brothers coming along to help us drive the turn attendant business forward. In terms of building the site, are you looking to establish a, a national footprint, at least uh, Cape Town, Durban, fairly quickly? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've just done some uh, planning before the announcement, uh, obviously, and uh, we, uh, we're very um, ambitious about this particular brand. And, in fact, uh, in the next 12 months, we'd certainly like to have a presence in places like Durban and Cape Town and hopefully Port Elizabeth as well. Why not start from scratch, Kevin? Starting from scratch is very difficult in the South African context. I think if you take a look at history, I mean, you know, the landscape is littered with, uh, with brands that wanted to start something from brand new. It's hard to start a new brand in South Africa in any category. Uh, Turn and Tender has been around for many, many years and uh, you know, successfully come back into the marketplace around 2007. 
And if you have a look at the, the existing restaurants, uh, they've got some wonderful equity. Uh, they're doing some nice numbers. Uh, you know, they're well liked by consumers, by franchise partners, potential franchise partners, also landlords. So it does give you a leg up in terms of uh, getting into the category when you go as an established brand. That's Kevin Hedewick there, the chief executive of Famous Brands. Simon, uh, another good deal for the company? It is, on some levels, on some levels, it's a bit surprised. The 50-50, as, as you did in your intro question there, they've been doing that, I think for two reasons. One, you want to keep the finding partners on. Two, I don't think the finding partners want to sell just yet. You've got three stores, you want to sell when you've got 40 or 50 or 100. So that's, I think, in part how you twist their arm. Um, obviously, the integration with, back, with the back-end kitchens and the manufacturing and the like, the, the, the whole just ability to roll it out. They don't, they, they've never been much in that sit down casual dining um, this is new for them the surprise for me perhaps was it was a little more upmarket than I would have thought um, their, their, their traditional base has more been sort of mid to upper income and the like and, and, and turn and tender is probably upper income to, to above that said it is family it is sit down it plugs a hole um, and Famous Brand has been doing lots of clever little deals as you mentioned Vivitello um, Garamando's uh, Tasha's uh, they did the, 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 the Frago Cafe recently Java Lava with coffee, the mozzarella cheese, all sorts of clever little deals which they can do because of their bulk and, and bolt-ons which, which they can almost immediately make cash positive. You say it's perhaps not in their, in their niche or in their segment, but if you look at Volvotello, if you look at Tasha's and if you look at Turn and Tender, those three fit very comfortably together. Exactly. But if you go back five years, they, they weren't there. Mm-hmm. It was, it was uh, Wimpier and Steers and, and, and the like. Yeah, Mug and Bean kind of straddles it to a degree. And, and it's, it's 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 famous brand saying, almost in a sense, and not disparagingly, let's be everything to everybody. You you want to eat food tonight? You're gonna you know your odds of hitting a famous brand store are getting larger and larger, and that's where Kevin has been moving his business to for the last decade or more. SAFM market update with MoneyWeb. Quarter past six here on the market update. Well, Cyprus clinched a last-minute deal with international lenders to shut down its second-largest bank and inflict heavy losses on uninsured depositors, including wealthy Russians, in return for a 10 billion euro bailout in early hours of this morning. Without a deal, Cyprus's banking system would have collapsed and the country could have become the first to crash out of the European single currency. The plan will wind down the largely state-owned popular Bank of Cyprus, also known as Lyki, and shifting deposits below 100,000 euros to the Bank of Cyprus to create a, quote, good bank. Deposits above 100,000 euros in both banks, which are not guaranteed under European law, will be frozen and used to resolve Likey's debts and recapitalize the Bank of Cyprus through a deposit-slash-equity conversion. Koki Kwoman, head of Sim Global, joins us now. Koki, has something like this ever happened before, where deposits above a certain level are essentially frozen and portions of them confiscated? Yes, I, I did quite a bit of work on, on, on the Thai crisis and uh, the Scandinavian crisis uh, and even the Argentinian one. I suppose the Argentinian one comes the closest. Um, but, you know, I, the exact detail, certainly it, 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 it never as a, as a large bank um, have the depositors been affected like this. And it's quite, I think it's quite uh, unique where you've, Force your depositors to effectively become shareholders in, in you know the bad, the bad bank. 
You've got this uh, this threshold of 100,000 euros uh, above which the deposit is not guaranteed under European Union law. Uh, are, there cons- are there concerns in the market that this sets a precedent when it comes to banks in Spain, when it comes to banks in Italy, when it comes to banks in Greece, if they come running to the EU for assistance? Uh, is that concern uh, uh, legitimate? Yeah, no, absolutely. In fact, you know, it's, it's been one of those last few days, and especially today, where there's been sort of every announcement has been a change. But I think the most important uh, was, and that I only saw now after five o'clock, uh, Mr. Disselbloom, who is the Dutch uh, Minister of Finance and is also responsible for the, the Eurogroup, uh, leading the Eurogroup uh, discussion, being chair of that regarding the whole Cyprus situation. Effectively, he, he, he made he made three three claims or three points. He said that eurozone countries with large banking sectors must look to restructure and reduce the overall size. Um, so, you know, you're looking at he's definitely against large banks. Mm. But then he says uninsured depositors need to be bailed in; they will be bailed in. So he's also saying large depositors, you've got to do your homework yourself. You, know, you can't just place your deposits in a bank and, and you know, go for the higher yield and expect to be rescued. You've got to do your own, own work. But now those two statements go against each other because generally <laughs> you are safer with larger banks, but he just said he doesn't want large banks. <laughs> so that means you, you actually need to get a lot more intelligence about the quality and the rating of the banks. Uh, the third point he made is quite important as well, and I think I totally agree with that. The aim is to shift away risks from the public sector, true. You don't want the, the, the taxpayer in future to have to um, stand in again. And he says, fourthly, if the bailing process works, direct ESEM or whatever form of recapitalization might never have to happen. But basically what he's saying is if you're a large deposit above 100,000 euro in the fact of Europe, that means let's say a million rand. So we're talking fairly large amounts. Then you've got to do your own homework, and you're not necessarily going to be protected. So if you are a large depositor in Spain or even France at this stage, where you know the economic situation is also quite quite concerning, or Portugal, uh, you better do your own homework because you might not be protected. And I don't know if you saw that today, but I, I noticed like uh, Sockgen, it's one of the mm. top. 10 banks in Europe is down 6% today because obviously suddenly there's fear that because it's a large bank in France and both are negative negative marks there, uh, you might see that Sokjin loses a lot of deposits and has to then pay up to attract more deposits which leads to a big margin squeeze. So the effect of this whole thing, what unintended consequences, I think he's just dealt a massive negative blow to Europe's growth prospects for the next three or six months because banks are certainly going to be back where they were in 2011 where they are afraid of lending out too much money because they're not quite sure for the next three months uh, if their deposits are stable. Also, given today's news and uh, that this bailout was agreed, the chaos not over, though. We still have to see these banks reopen and reopen in an orderly manner. Uh, I know the, the Troika have imposed uh, some rather interesting capital controls, and, and the, the Cypriot uh, parliament has also uh, kind of put, put these together. But th- th- there's got to be a significant amount of control to, to prevent a, a complete flight of capital from, from yeah. Cyprus. Yeah. They've, they've, they've threatened or they have actually imposed capital controls. 
I can't see how you can do that in, in you know, I suppose you can do it for large transactions or bank transfers. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the, the Cypriot economy is grinding to a halt uh, in that even in, in, in gas stations or petrol stations, we know them here, mm. <laughs> um, they're not taking credit cards anymore. So they're only taking cash. And now cash is becoming a scarce commodity in the economy. So, like, everything is becoming a cash-based economy. Uh, so... Um, Certainly, it's 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 been it's been uh, very interesting. But what is interesting is you look at APSA. APSA's price is two and a half percent up today. Now, I, I, I hate reading much into an intraday movement, but you can clearly see that global investors are suddenly worried again about European banks and Europe in the short term. And sort of outside of Europe, I don't think there will be too much uh, too much risk. Koki Coleman is head of some global. Simon, uh, I saw something interesting this weekend reading up about this. It's hard to imagine, given the news flow we've seen and given these decisions and kind of plan A, plan B, plan C, plan B, plan C, it's hard to imagine that we could have seen a more chaotic policy-making process. One commentator this weekend described it as Laurel and Hardy carrying a piano upstairs. You're 100% spot on. And the one thing we have seen with the whole Europe debacle, etc., uh, Greece, Italy, Spain, and so it goes on, is that it's been painfully slow, but it's been very, very ordered. Um, and, and Cyprus has been anything but ordered. I mean, it, it has been chaos. I mean, Cookie saying there, you know, it's gone to a, a, a cash society now, but you can't draw cash from ATMs and, and all of those sort of issues. Um, and uh, at the end of the day, at least they're not hitting, you know, that the guarantees are in place. 100,000 euros is, is, is a fairly chunk amount of cash to have lying around. Um, but it does, as, as I said in the interview there, uh, you now start to wonder about other, I mean, this is a precedent. With those capital controls, what's effectively being said is that one euro inside Cyprus is worth less than one euro in Italy, in Greece, in Spain, in France, in Germany. It's as which, that. Is, which is completely against everything that the European Union in general and the Eurozone, which is the monetary policy zone, is against. It says a euro is a euro, draw it wherever, spend it wherever, earn it wherever, and you're 100% right. Suddenly, there's, there's Cypriot euros and then euro euros. And yeah, I bet the Greeks are looking at this and saying, hey, hang on, was there other ways? I, I do think that, that the Cypriot was, this is not the best way to get out of a crisis. The Greeks are having pain, the Italians, etc., but uh, rather that than then. What essentially is is a banking crisis, it goes back to the Asian Tigers of 98, Argentina, early 2000, Russia in, in, in 98 as well. It's a banking crisis, perhaps bigger than that, except that uh, Cyprus is so small. 23 minutes after 6 o'clock, well, 10 days ago, the Supreme Court of Appeal ordered ESCOM to disclose for the first time how the price of electricity sold to BHP Billiton's aluminium smelters in the country is calculated. Chris Yelland, MD of EE Publishers, joins us now. Chris, you've done exhaustive analysis of the pricing agreements and what uh, BHP Billiton is paying ESCOM for electricity. That story is up on moneyweb.co.za. You've looked essentially at three agreements, one involving uh, two pot lines at Hillside uh, smelter, uh, then the third pot line, which was an extension uh, to that smelter, and then a third contract for Mazel. What is ESCOM uh, rather be, being paid by BHP Billison for electricity on average by, uh, for these uh, elect, uh, aluminium smelters? Uh, Hilton, um, <coughs> as you rightly say, there are three separate contracts and three completely different mechanisms <coughs> uh, by which uh, ESCOM determine the price per month. 
And uh, my article uh, looks at all each of the three mechanisms, uh, works out the uh, average price per kilowatt hour for each of these um, three contracts, and then looks at the overall figure to, to work out uh, the average that uh, uh, BHP Billet is paying for its electricity per kilowatt hour. But short and tall, you ask the question, what is the average price they're paying? And my calculation is that they pay 27.15 cents per kilowatt hour on average across all of those three installations. Now, some of them, uh, the cheapest one, of course, is the hillside plotline one and two. It comes in at about 21 cents a kilowatt hour. Uh, then we have the, um, the extension, the hillside plotline three, which comes in at 27.5 cents per kilowatt hour. And finally, the Mosul uh, installation uh, comes out at 33 cents a kilowatt hour. And I'll say on average, based on the weighted average, based on how much energy each uh, use, each plant uses, it, it works out to 27.15 cents per kilowatt hour. How does this compare, Chris, to what it actually costs ESCOM to, to produce electricity? Mm. Well, the average cost of supply of ESCOM uh, is about 41 cents a kilowatt hour. Uh, that is the, the average cost of production. That is, if you were to take all ESCOM's costs, as they declare in their income statement for the year, uh, of running the whole business, the whole business of ESCOM, and you divide it by the total amount of kilowatt hours that they deliver, uh, you work out, uh, uh, you know, the, the rands per kilowatt hour, the cost per kilowatt hour, mm. that comes to about 41 cents per kilowatt hour. I do remember <clears throat> that it's not the cost of generation, uh, there's a whole value chain from coal to generating electricity to transmitting it and finally to distributing it uh, to the final point of use. Uh, and that figure I've given you, 41 cents a kilowatt hour, is uh, across the whole value chain, the average cost to supply. That means the cost divided by the kilowatt hours that they produce. Chris Yelland is MD of EE Publishing. First of all, the concept that discretionary trusts won't be um, won't long uh, won't any longer act as flow through vehicles is the, the the first and I suppose the biggest proposal. And what precisely this means is at present, if income comes into a trust and goes straight through, then it's taxed in the hands of the eventual recipient or beneficiary, as if they were the the the, the direct recipient. So right there, you can see that there's no actual. Um, tax avoidance, uh, obvious tax avoidance um, in that um, concept because it simply means that there shouldn't be a difference um, between receiving income via trust or receiving it directly. The tax principles should be exactly the same. And that's what we have at the moment. And this is the principle that they're looking to remove. This is what the proposal says, that they won't act as flow-through entities, which essentially means that if something comes into a trust, and then comes straight out to the beneficiary, it'll be fully taxed um, in the hands of the beneficiary, irrespective of what that kind of income is. Um, so at an overview level, that's what we think it means. I'm a little bit concerned that it might extend to capital gains as well. Mm. Um, and again, if I, if I can go into a little bit of detail about my concern here, um, at present, if a, if a capital gain is realized in a trust, then that capital gain can be taxed 